0: Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Wai or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Peter Godfrey Smith believes that encountering an octopus is the closest we might ever come to meeting an intelligent alien, with its eight tentacles so packed with neurons that they virtually think for themselves. His book, Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea and The Deep Origins of Consciousness, has been hailed by Talking Heads musician David Byrne as his best read of 2018 and is entrancing and profound by the Financial Times. Join this Australian scuba diving philosopher of science for a discussion of the evolutionary journey of octopi and what it teaches us about the human mind. In conversation with Dr. Susie Wiles, this session is supported by our Platinum Bowl patrons, Francis and Bill Bell. We hope you enjoy it.
1: So we are going to be talking a lot about the octopus, um, so there's, some, there's a very crucial thing I think we need to get out of the way first, which is, is it octopuses, octopi, or octopodes?
2: It, it must be the most discussed plural in, in, <laughs> in the language now. Octopuses is probably best. Uh, octopi would be a combination of, of Greek and Latin and uh, especially at an event at which the Philo-Hellenic comma queen is present, <laughs> it would be a terrible thing to mix Greek and Latin in that way. So, octopodes would be the Greek, pure Greek version, but most, most people now say octopuses and that's mm-hmm. probably.
1: Yeah, and I, I read that some, some dictionaries say octopi, absolutely no way. Others say it's wrong, but because people use it so much, it's sort of acceptable. But we're going to stick with octopuses.
2: I think so, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I was reading that, um, so it, it comes from the Greek, um, and it's for, uh, for being eight-footed. But I read that, uh, actually, I can't remember whether I read or saw you say that actually it's not feet at all. They're eight-lipped.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, arms is, is the usual mm. scientific word for them. But in a way, you could think of them as lips uh, mm. because they surround the mouth. So with an octopus, you've got a mouth in the middle and the first arms, second arms, third arms and fourth arms in a kind of ring really, although it doesn't always look like that. Uh, So in that respect, you could think of an octopus as having eight very dexterous and elongatable (laughs) lips.
1: (laughs) So I guess my first question is, How does a philosopher of science get interested in octopuses?
2: Right. I I was living in the US uh, at the time. I learned to scuba dive when I was young but hadn't done a huge amount of it. Went off to the US and lived there for a long time. And then um, around about 2005 or so, I just began to spend a little bit more time around Sydney again. And in particular around Manly, which is just north of Sydney Harbour and... This was really an extraordinary stroke of, of luck in a way. I'd, I'd grown up in, in that area and it had not been any kind of marine reserve or, mar, or marine park. And, and like a lot of Australian beaches, it had been spearfished to death uh, over many years. But around 2003, there was a small marine reserve created really just exactly where I was, where I I was staying on my breaks. And so I began to spend some more time in the water. And soon after the reserve, which is called Cabbage Tree Bay, was created, the animals arrived. And it's now a pretty remarkable place, especially at this time of year. This is giant cuttlefish season. And I began to spend time in the water and soon began to encounter these completely extraordinary animals.
1: Wait, so... Not octopuses at all, but cuttlefish. Initially
2: giant cuttlefish, initially uh, giant cuttlefish. So a giant cuttlefish, quite a bit more conspicuous Mm -hmm. an animal than most octopuses. They get up to about three feet long. They can change their entire skin colour in less than a second. And whereas octopuses often tend to specialise in a kind of muted palette of of greys and browns and things. Actually, giant cuttlefish, they would admire your hair. <laughs> uh, they go for reds and oranges and yellows. Would that and... be
1: food <laughs> or, or, or no, something you would, else? You would be someone to meet. Oh, I think. meat. Meat. We can, we can do meat.
2: Yeah. Uh, they produce the most extraordinary colours. And so that's one conspicuous thing about them. A second conspicuous thing about them is the fact that they often seem, and this is also related to... Uh, the interest in your hair, they often seem as interested in people as people are in them. They're not scared in many cases Mm. Uh, and they can be positively inquisitive. They have a kind of inquisitive exploratory style. In some cases, I mean, yet another related interesting thing is the individual differences. You get shy ones, you get aggressive ones and you get some friendly ones. So this is a three foot long animal that skin is a video screen changing colour
1: Uh, continually. Lip arm with things, eight, yes, eight, yeah, eight, eight well. arms
2: and also two kind of missile-like extra feeding tentacles as squid have as well. So okay. they have ten appendages rather than eight, whereas octopuses just have the eight. Um, so I, I just be, became a bit obsessed with these animals and then worked out as I was watching them, there were octopuses watching me <laughs> uh, from, from cover, more disguised, and became equally enchanted by octopuses. So far, this was just purely a kind of recreational thing, which seems a bit odd in retrospect, because I was a philosopher of biology, interested in living things and and the questions that they raise. But I'd never really taken a particular animal or kind of animal and tried to sort of learn it inside out, really learn what it has to teach us. And cephalopods, the group that includes octopuses and cuttlefish are really sort of perfect uh, Mm -hmm. from certain points of view because they're very complicated animals with respect to their behaviour. They have large nervous systems, largest nervous systems of any invertebrate, but their evolutionary distance from us is huge. Mm -hmm. The the common ancestor that you shared with an octopus was probably a little worm-like thing about that big living 600 million years ago. Uh, which is not early in the history of life on Earth, but it is early in the history of animal life. Animals are not that much older than that, probably. So the, you know, the evolutionary tree structure is one that features a divergence between the line leading to us and the the line leading to octopuses, which is a very early branch point. And so all that complexity that they've evolved and both their similarities with us and their differences from us, all of that stuff was invented independently on their own line while we were on our line doing our thing. So if you're interested in the evolution of, of the mind, roughly speaking, you know, you couldn't get a more interesting animal and that was the beginning of, of, of the more intellectual side of the project.
1: So can you just tell us a little bit about... Um Uh, I guess let's go back to octopuses, so um, how many species there are, like how big do they get, Um, how long do they live, things like that?
2: Right, a few hundred species, maybe 300 or something like that, at least that are known. Uh, The biggest is the giant Pacific octopus, uh, which is a, you know, really big animal, um, hundreds of pounds that live up around Alaska and Seattle, places like that, Canada. Um, the smallest, you know, a, a charmingly tiny, <laughs> uh, very short-lived, which is another one of these weird facts about them. So this is an animal that has, a, a, again, the largest nervous system of any invertebrate. It's a very exploratory animal. They can learn quite well but they rush through their lives in almost every case. They sort of gallop through their lives and most octopuses, including uh, the most charming ones, are are dead within two years of being born, which is very, it is very sad.
1: Even in captivity, this is not like they're all just being eaten.
2: Right, even in in captivity. I mean, some of them can live a bit longer. The giant Pacific octopus can get to about four years and there are some deep sea species, everything is different in the very deep sea that can live for quite a bit longer but they live, their lives are so, everything happens so (laughs) slow that it sort of almost doesn't count. Uh, But, and the same is true of giant cuttlefish, they they also are are dead typically within two years. And this was a a shock to me when I had that, those series of experiences, 10 or 15 years ago, you know, I encountered these animals. I thought, these are just, you know, the greatest animal. I have to learn all about them. I'll get to know them. I'll befriend them. I'll be coming (laughs) back next year and the year after. And then I found out I would not be, I mean, I would be encountering more animals of the same sort the year after. But all the ones that I met in that first year, that first sort of rush of enthusiasm, (laughs) were actually within months of the end of their lives. Wow. When they reach the end of their lives, it is very sad because the the bodies just fall apart on a scale of days. I mean, it's, or certainly weeks. They really, they really uh, have a sort of dramatic and upsetting decline.
1: Wow. That's, okay. (laughs) 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 All right. Um, In your book, you talk about a place called Octopolis. which, I don't know, that sounds so exciting, doesn't it? For those of you who haven't heard of Octopolis. Um, can you tell us about about this place?
2: Sure, yes. Octopolis is south of Sydney uh, a few hours. Uh, the, the exact site is, is still secret. We've managed uh-huh. to keep it secret for over 10 years now. And it was discovered by a friend of mine, uh, Matt Lawrence, who's a very intrepid scuba diver. I mean, this is something you should, under no circumstances, do. Uh,
1: Especially in
2: Australia. (laughs) Right, right. he would just go out in this boat, jump off the side of the boat with scuba gear on his own and hold onto the anchor of the boat and just let the boat drift and he would be carried wherever the boat went and he would have no idea exactly where he was going to end up. So it was a way of exploring, uh, again, not (laughs) in any sense recommended. Um, I mean, Matt would do it, he would have completely redundant extra air systems, he would do it with more safety gear than you would normally have, but not recommended nonetheless. And one, one time he was doing this and he just came across a, a, a patch, you know, an area that's pretty much, I would say, two-thirds of the size of this stage that uh, in a sort of flat, sandy area on the bottom of the sea had countless thousands of scallop shells and there was uh, a, a dozen or perhaps a dozen and a half, he reckons, on that first occasion, octopuses all hanging out there, interacting with each other. And a lot of the interactions involve a kind of jostling and wrestling and dealing with each other's personal space and that kind of thing.
1: So I guess we should, So I've made a mistake here, we should back up a little bit because this is actually really unusual for octopuses, isn't it?
2: Right. And he, they're
1: usually much more solitary than that, aren't they?
2: That's right, and and Matt knew this was a bit unusual. He didn't know how unusual it was. So he he knew that he had only seen octopuses individually before, Mm -hmm. in ones and occasionally twos when they're mating. Uh, To see 12 in one place is very, very unusual. I mean, literally, the only time that had been recorded before ever was uh, a now lost site in Panama uh, back in the 1970s when a couple of biologists found um, at a deeper depth, and this is, but didn't have any way of taking photos or video at that, at that time, um, unfortunately, they found a, a similar kind of thing. But except for the Panama case, this case, which we now call Octopolis, was really uh, the next one. And so, so Matt knew it was a bit unusual. He didn't realise quite how unusual it was. So if you look at the, the standard reference book written about octopuses and other cephalopods at that time, book called Cephalopod Behaviour by Roger Hanlon and John Messenger. it just said explicitly, you know, octopuses are essentially asocial. They, they are not interested in hanging out with each other. Uh, it was known that they often fight if you have more than one together in captivity or if they come across each other. So to come across, and, and this by the way raises a, another set of questions about how evolution made them so behaviorally complex, because if you ask most biologists today, you know, what's the predictor of an animal getting a big nervous system and very complex behaviours, many biologists will say, well, having to deal with other animals of the same species, mm-hmm. that's, that's the problem that really requires you to get smart. Yeah. Octopus has got smart for other reasons, <laughs> it seems, um, because I don't suggest that Octopolis is, is typical of the whole octopus group, mm-hmm. I think. We don't know exactly how special it is. We now have a second site called Octlantis, as as well as Octopolis. Uh, But really it's just the two. Uh Anyway, so Matt realised it was a bit unusual and posted on an internet site for octopus enthusiasts, uh, (laughs) there are such things, a little report about it. And a friend of mine, Chrissy Hufford, who's a, a real octopus scientist, a serious scientist, she saw this and she got in touch with me and said, hang on, isn't, isn't this not that far from where you are? And I said, my God, it is not that far <laughs> from, from where I am. Um, so I went down and visited and sure enough, there's this amazing site where octopuses in this in this environment have had to... I'll I'll say the word learner, though it's it's unclear exactly what is learning and what is the expression of, you know, evolved behavioural programs, but I think a lot of it's learning. They've had to learn to get along, to deal with each other, to sort of find a way to cope with each other and uh, not just have uh, the whole thing collapse into a sort of maelstrom of octopus violence. (laughs) There is still some octopus violence, uh, but a a lot of the time there's not. There's a kind of low level... Aggression. Sort of quasi, mm-hmm. with some of the behaviours actually, um, we now think they're less aggressive than they sometimes look. So okay. um, I'll show some video in a second so you can, you can see a little bit of this. <laughs> but one of the things we saw quite uh, frequently at Octopolis, again, so it's a site, about, a site about two-thirds the size of this stage and you've often got a dozen octopuses or less. It can be as few as two, uh, but as many, I think 16 is, is, the, is the record that we've seen, they, they do a lot of sort of arm poking and sort of that kind of thing. And when I first began watching it, I thought, okay, it's like boxing. It's like a sort of sparring. And Stefan Lindquist, another person who's involved in, in this work, who's obviously a, a much nicer person than I am, he said, no, 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 it's high fives. They're doing, <laughs> they're doing a kind of high five to each other. They're not boxing. Uh, and... I think that's probably right in some cases <laughs> that what some of the time it does look like a kind mm-hmm. of aggressive poking at other octopuses. But sometimes what you see is a, what looks like a sort of recognitional touch. So I'll mm-hmm. come past and I'll just sort of reach out and Hi. do that. <laughs> and often it's just one touch often. and then the octopus seems to work out what's going on and continue yeah. on. It's important that when an octopus touches you, those suckers are not just feeling the shape and texture, they're also tasting everything that they touch. So an octopus's taste, you know, that comparison of arms to lips is perhaps apt in, 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 a, in another way as well. So everything they touch, they're tasting. And it seems likely to us that we haven't been able to work out the details or really how to even look at the details, um, it seems likely that some of these touches are a kind of recognitional—a mm-hmm. recognitional thing. Let's show...
1: Yes, let's show them. So the, I, show I brought along
2: just a couple of little bits of video of Octopolis.
1: We couldn't not show some octopuses, right?
2: <laughs> uh, so there's two. There's two bits of video. The first one, uh, just to give you a sense of the site and of some of the characteristic behaviours. I like this one because of this sort of uh, beautiful jet propulsion that they engage in. This is just a video of two in this case. Um, and the video was taken by leaving GoPro cameras down there and going away and coming back to see what they would get up to. And often the octopuses find the GoPro cameras to be uh, at least of interest, sometimes <laughs> things to take apart. And in other cases, so that's, that's one of those kind of um, somewhat sort of uh, <laughs> elaborate arm touch there. They sometimes regard the camera angles that we've chosen as uh, not ideal, um, so you get.
1: Uh, That's them doing it, yeah, oh wow, okay. Yeah.
2: you get adjustments of the camera angle. <laughs> so, so that gives you a sense of a couple of behaviours at Octopolis. Another thing we do see at Octopolis is, is a, a certain amount of, of violence. So sometimes things do, you know, relations do break down. Now as I play this video, I'd like to also issue a sort of uh, a comment which is, In all the time I've seen, I've spent watching octopus fights, uh, and here we have a couple of nice dramatic ones, I've never seen an octopus killed or seriously injured. I think it's actually quite hard for two octopuses of similar size to do that much damage to each other. Now, if one's much bigger than the other, then you can, then apparently, uh, you can get uh, damage and death. But in these cases, that's a very typical outcome. Uh, you, you get a great sort of eight-armed or eight-lipped wrestling, sort of violent <laughs> kiss contest. Uh, they probably are trying to get their beak, which is a hard part, into contact with the other animal, but I think that's quite hard for an octopus. And often it ends just with one of, one of the octopuses going on its way. Um, while I'm showing video, I should just also acknowledge Budarree National Park, which is the national park where, uh, where, where, where the site is and... and um, uh, acknowledge the excellent job they do in, in, in protecting this bit of the environment. Okay, that's, that's all the video. So I want to get brought. back
0: to
1: um, Octopolis and, and Octlanta. Octlantis, Octlanta, yeah. Are obviously really special if the octopuses are essentially changing their behavior and going from solitary to urban living. Um, so what, what is it about that site? Like why do they want to be there? And I guess how, did, how, do you, how do you think those sites arose?
2: Right. We think the situation is like this. The site's a bit unusual because in one respect it's octopus heaven because you have unlimited food, you have a huge amount of food. It's a scallop bed and o- uh, scallops are not an octopus's favourite food but they're pretty high on the list, crabs are usually top of the list for most octopuses, it's a scallop bed that was commercially dredged and really messed up for many years, but is now protected well, octopus heaven, but it's also octopus hell because of the predators in that area, you've got seals, several kinds of sharks, dolphins, all of whom would love to eat octopus pretty much all day. (laughs) <laughs> and the 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 sand or the sort of silty bottom of the sea at that point is very soft. You can't build a very good den, a, a, a safe den, just by digging because the walls. Collapse.
1: So that's what they normally do. So normally they would, yeah, they would, they normally would, dig, they would dig into the sand, but it would be more solid so it would kind of not collapse on them.
2: Right. Or, or okay. they'd find a rock and sort of burrow next to the rock right, or okay. find an object. Now with Octopolis, the first site, what we think happened is that some unknown single object, not a very big object, about that big, was dropped from a boat. We think Dirty it's chested. metal. <laughs> Possibly, uh, the octopuses are guarding it too carefully to, to know. It was dropped from a boat and provided one or two good den sites because the octopuses could dig a, a safe den adjoining this object. And they began to go out and get scallops and bring the scallops back and eat the scallops and leave the scallop shells.
1: Right. And so then more octopuses
2: could come <laughs> and live using the scallop shells as a supplement to the den building material. Mm-hmm. And they would bring in more, more scallops and leave those shells. And the, the, the picture we have, though we can't prove this, we think this probably took place over quite a few years, is there's a kind of positive feedback process where the more octopuses lived there, the more scallops they brought in and more shells they left. The more shells were left, the more scope there was to build a high-quality den because mm-hmm. scallop shells are an excellent den-building material. Mm-hmm. You now get octopuses that have built these these shafts with exactly, perfectly straight walls that go about 50 centimetres deep uh, lined with scallop shells into the sea. So you can look down this shaft, and there's an octopus way down the bottom oh. of the shaft, completely safe from all the sharks do, and dolphins How do they stop them things. from collapsing? They just don't, I mean, they've been, the shells just sit nicely okay. in a, uh, I don't think they are particularly good construction engineers, <laughs> but they're good enough to build a 50-centimeter shaft of scallop shells in the silt that will, that will stay put.
1: Wow. That's pretty amazing.
2: Yeah. So that's Octopolis. Octlantis, and Octopolis we think began with this kind of single object that seeded, it's like the seeding of a crystal in a way. One object got put there artificially, not deliberately we assume, just fell off a boat, and that's how it got going. Um, Marty Hing and Carly Brown, friends of Matt's, more recently discovered a second site, Mm -hmm. which we called Stephanie Chancellor. I should, she came up with the perfect name, Uh, Octlantis. Now that one has no man-made object, Mm -hmm. apparently man-made object, uh, as the sort of centre. It's just, there happens to be a couple of rocks coming out of the seafloor in an area where normally you have no rocks. It's Mm -hmm. just a sandy plain except for these. And you have a similar kind of concentration where now most of the octopuses are living not... Uh, in dens adjoining the rocks, but in the same kind of scallop shell Right, shaft and again, dens. They're,
1: but they're also close to the scallops, and so that's sort of, so again, that Yeah, food they're surrounded
2: and by, uh, you know, this huge amount of food. Mm-hmm. And we also conjecture that, you know, octopuses do have this cannibalistic tendency. And at Octopolis, you can see octopuses about the size of a, a matchbox, extremely sweet octopuses, and octopuses about the size of a basketball, mm-hmm. uh, much bigger. Uh, but I've never seen an attempt to eat another octopus. And I guess that's because there's just so much food that's not putting up much of a fight, the scallops. Uh, although they, they do put to. up, scallops have eyes and can swim. It's very surprising. Uh, <laughs> they, they do, they have eyes around the sort of lip and when they swim, they look like little castanets flying, <laughs> flying around, yeah.
1: Um, so do you, so you kind of said it was sort of like the size of the stage. Um, is it getting bigger and bigger every year or uh, like is this going to be like a sprawling metropolis in 10, 20 years' time? It or seems do you think they've reached a, like, we're urban enough and no more, thank you, or...?
2: A NIMBYism. <laughs> <octopus> <laughs> nimbyism. Uh, it's hard to say. I think it's, it's it's situation somewhat complicated because, OK, this is this is partly hypothetical, although there's some, there's some observations we've made that suggest this. If you get heaps of octopuses there, then... Some of the uh, local Wobbegong sharks decide this is a good place to live too. Right. And you get these enormous uh, sharks living on the site terrorising the octopuses okay. and uh, that suppresses the numbers and silt starts to come in, mm-hmm. the scallop shells start to get buried. Now, there might be a cyclical process where the sharks then think, oh, this is not working out so well, for me. I'll go somewhere else. Then and more then octopuses, the octopuses can resettle it. It might yes. be like that. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say, uh, and you saw the octopus adjusting camera angles. I once went down with some, I made some stakes. I thought I'm going to mark, I'm going to put stakes north, south and east and west at the boundaries <laughs> of the site. Uh, at, as they presently are, and then I'll come back and see if, if the boundaries have shrunk or grown over time. Well, I hammered the stakes in, came back a little bit later, and octopus had pulled out two of the stakes,
0: <laughs> and, and used we're them for using something them else. as
2: den decoration. <laughs> <laughs> and one of those stakes is still there, sort of four years later. So it's it's been passed from octopus to octopus as a sort of interesting piece of den decoration.
1: Because there's also an interesting thing about how they mate and and stuff. So. Um they don't look hard, they're not very good parents, are they? They they just sort well, of...
2: Well, female octopuses are excellent parents in, in, in one important respect. So mating between octopuses is not, not particularly romantic, uh, often takes place at long distance where the male will stretch out an arm and... Pass a sperm packet along the underside H- hang on. of the arm.
1: Um, so are the high fives a potential mating thing?
2: No. So the high. Okay. F- uh, uh, They're definitely so it's, not. it's the third right arm is the mating arm right, on the okay. male, and, and the male high
1: five is a different arm.
2: That's first arms. <laughs> always first arms. So okay. the, the male keeps the third right arm very much out of the way most of the time, probably because right. if that gets damaged, it's over as far as reproduction is concerned. The high fives are always the first arms. Okay. So hey. um, you do get a lot of a lot of pre-mating sort mm-hmm. of interaction with the first arms, but then mating is with the third arm. So the, the and it can either be close range or long range depending on, I think depending on whether the male thinks he's in danger. Uh, mm-hmm. If the male's smaller than the female, we think that there's a chance of sexual cannibalism. Hasn't been seen in, in this species, but it has been seen in other mm-hmm. octopus species. Uh, then the female, um, fertilises the eggs with the sperm packet, lays the eggs and the female will then brood the eggs, Mm -hmm. never leaving them, holding them sort of on and at her body. And you see that at at Octopolis? Yeah, it's not hard to see that at various places. They, uh, although actually at Octopolis they tend to sort of go well down, Mm -hmm. uh, out of the way when they're doing this. But we have seen some some eggs there. And the female sort of tends for the eggs and keeps them aerated, keeps exactly the right Mm -hmm. sort of... Water flow over them, and then the eggs hatch and become larvae and swim away, uh, and she dies soon after. So that's a single—it's a single clutch of eggs right. normally with okay. with most octopuses.
1: Okay, so it's not like they're, and then those ones will just drift off, and it maybe at some point they might come back later and go, "Oh, octopolis, um, Right, but they it's, won't.
2: If octopus, so there are some octopuses called large large egg octopuses where there's a tendency for the, the younger generation to stay around. Mm-hmm. But with most octopuses that have small eggs, the larvae just go up and become part of the plankton and, and mm-hmm. could go anywhere. And so there's no reason to believe that the octopuses at Octopolis now are the offspring or grand offspring of octopuses that were there before. Right. Uh, now, we don't know that. Maybe there's a kind of chemical imprinting like with salmon or something like that where they tend to come back to where they were born. But the the likely picture is that this site is just being kind of continually recreated by octopuses mm-hmm. discovering it and mm. and working out how to deal with the special yeah. circumstances.
1: So could there be, I guess, an octopolis near us? Do you know much about New Zealand um, octopuses?
2: There could be. I mean, this is a species, this species, octopus, tetricus, is also found in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, it has a different common name here, so in Sydney, it's called the Sydney octopus or the gloomy <laughs> octopus because it has these eyes that can have a sort of soulful look about them. <laughs> in New Zealand, uh, it's called octopus gibsii or gibsii. Okay. Gibsii, I think. That's the name it was given here. But it turns out it's, a, it's the same species. And uh, we should be proud of these octopuses. These are very good octopuses. Um, <laughs> they're active in the daytime. Um, they have a kind of lively, engaged tendency. Um, this is all, it seems odd to be sort of proud of this, but I have to admit that I did feel a bit of pride. So David <laughs> Shield, my collaborator, he usually works on the giant Pacific octopus, this enormous octopus, you know, really huge, you know, 150-pound octopus. And he has to catch them in these freezing cold waters off Alaska, <laughs> which I find just an amazing, you know, how do you do that? <laughs> um, So he's there in this enormous spacesuit like dry suit in freezing cold water wrestling with a (laughs) 150-pound octopus with eight (laughs) arms. Nonetheless, when David came to Australia and at one point there was a project where we thought we'd catch some of these guys and see if we could put a little radio tag Mm -hmm. on them. Didn't really work, unfortunately. Um, Had to catch one and sort of manhandle it and try to get this to happen. He, he said to me after the first attempt, he said, my God, these are ninja octopuses. <laughs> uh, by which he meant, that, you know, they're very muscular. The Australian ones are very, very muscular <laughs> and they sort of leap around, you know, this <laughs> was leaping around the boat, sort of bouncing off walls and climbing on things. The, the, Another
1: adaptation perhaps to being a city, a city octopus rather perhaps, than perhaps a, perhaps a rural so. octopus. <laughs>
2: right. But whereas these, whereas these cold water giant octopuses were kind of like, you know, big muscular blobs of jelly, our guys were like little ninja warriors and I I did feel a sort of moment of pride at (laughs) at, at that point.
1: Um, So actually I have a quick question um, related to that. So here in New Zealand we have the Animal Welfare Act and if you're going to do any um, studies on animals and stuff uh, there are certain animals that are covered under the Act. And octopuses are one of them. Is that the same in, in Australia? Okay. So you actually need to get permission from an ethics uh, to to put the trackers on them. Is that the case? Because that would be the case here, I imagine.
2: In... I'm glad to hear that. Um, it, it's different country by country. In Australia, it's more informal, as I understand it. So we did go through we did go through an ethics process, but with invertebrate animals in Australia, that. Is, is kind of optional. Uh, uh-huh, it's okay. not the case as it is in the EU. As I understand it, uh, it may have changed more recently. But in in the EU, octopuses are now sort of honorary vertebrates. Mm. Yeah, you've I think got, it's the same thing. You've got this list of animals that you have to sort of treat mm. with, with considerable care, and now uh, vertebrates and octopuses as kind of honorary vertebrates. Uh, it's not true in America. In America, mm. uh, that's not the case. Uh, but I'm not
1: sure they even count mice. As- as, uh, as mammals, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's kind
2: of unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> uh, in in Australia, it's it's they're sort of unofficially, I think. There's mm-hmm. there's the I think people best
1: practice would be to talk to the. That's right, about I think. It, right? But,
2: it, but it's not, I think, part of the the official mm-hmm. rules. One other thing that worries me a little bit about the current situation has been a few articles recently about people in different places in the world wanting to make octopuses into model organisms for different kinds of <laughs> biological work, yeah. including both embryological mm. work on development from the egg and also neuro, mm. neurobiological work. Now, embryological work I don't have a big problem with, but I worry a bit that one reason why people might be interested in using octopuses for neuroscientific work is they have great big brains but not much protection for mm. now in many countries, including the US. And that would be unfortunate mm. if, if things went that way. I think, I think it's a good thing that the EU, Gave them this kind of mm. honorary vertebrate mm. status because
1: you've seen them like tending wounds and stuff, right? They do, they do feel pain, if not. It in seems the likely
2: that they feel pain. Yes, the the it's very hard to tell with invertebrate animals. You know, the the pain works very interesting, um, but there are a couple of groups where the evidence is now is now rather good, and mm. crustaceans are one, and octopuses are another. In the case of octopuses, probably the um, the best study is a wound-tending study. So, you know, some animals, if you injure them, they protect the area. They don't want it to come into contact with things. They try to keep it safe until it give it a chance to heal. Other animals, including insects, just do not care, it seems, when damage is done to them. Just keep on going. Make no attempt to protect the area. And a, a wound-tending study was done um, by uh, Jean um, Apollet uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, where she did find wound tending in an Mm. octopus. She's Um,
1: based in the U.S.? Where is she based?
2: I think she is. Yes, she is based in the U.S. I think around Santa Cruz. Because they did
1: a, it sounds a little, I mean they sort of crushed their arm a little bit. Yes, it was an, it was uh,
2: was not a. Not a a serious crush. The way to do a wound tending study is not to to do something too, too damaging. Um, We've seen. Uh, things that certainly look as if an octopus is responding to an immediate painful mm. stimulus uh, in, a, in our observations. But those, those sorts of observations are less conclusive because, you know, it might be a reflex type mm. thing that doesn't, because you had Isn't a really great example of um,
1: one that was like, had, had lifted itself and was sort of trying to make itself as big as possible, obviously menacing another little octopus next to it and then it got bitten. Right. <laughs> By a fish and fish came in and bit it.
2: Yes. <laughs> and then, uh, it was like, Ooh! <laughs> Octopuses, one of the displays that we've described involves sort of raising the rear end far above the head to make the animal look as big as possible but there are these fiendish leather jacket fish uh, (laughs) that will bite things exposed like that. And this octopus got bit right on the end of its bum, essentially, (laughs) and did exactly what a person would do, uh, at least insofar as I can imagine what I would do in that circumstance. Looked very much like a kind of startled, irritated, pain-type response. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't think of that as having a lot of evidential weight, whereas things like the things that, with invertebrate pain that I do think have weight are things like wound tending, mm-hmm. uh, no one has done a self-administration of analgesia study with an invertebrate right. that's worked yet. So with with fish and with birds, th- the animals can learn to administer painkillers to themselves. You know, they'll, they'll pick a food they don't usually like if it contains painkiller under some, so if they've been injured. Mm-hmm. Both fish and birds will, uh, chickens will, will do things like that. This was tried with bees and uh, the bees did not self-administer. That was a a lab in Queensland that did that recently, which supports the general picture we have that adult insects don't seem much concerned Mm -hmm. with body damage. Mm -hmm. So there's things like self-administration of painkiller, wound tending, uh, trade-off behaviours. There's a lovely study that Robert Elwood did Um, at Belfast where the question was, if you're a hermit crab and I'm giving you horrible little electric shocks, uh, will you give up your shell to make those shocks cease? They're not not that bad. I mean, the the crabs are not (laughs) being seriously damaged by the shocks. And it turns out that the crabs make an extremely fine trade-off. It's like, well, this is a really, really good shell. So I'll put up (laughs) with more shock than I would if it was a not a very good shell. Mm. And also, if this is a good shell and I can smell there might be a predator in the area, then I'll really yeah,
1: I'll sort of hunker
2: down and sit out these shocks. Whereas if, there's, if it's apparently safe, then I'll get out of the shell. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot of things that hermit crabs do that fall into the category of sort of trade-offs between different good and bad features of a situation and Elwood, uh, does and I agree with this. He regards this as rather good evidence that, that, that hermit crabs can feel, can mm. feel pain or, or a pain-like mm. sensation.
1: So I want to move us away completely from that to one of my favourite things about, I guess, octopuses and cuttlefish which is their amazing displays of, you know, the camouflage and, um, and how they change their colour. Uh, You describe this really, really nicely in the book so um, can you talk us through a little bit about how they do this because uh, it turns out like they only have um, the kind of the type of cells that really only make three colours but yet you can get all manner of colours from them. So can you talk us through a little
2: bit? Yeah. The skin has roughly speaking three layers of colour producing um, devices. And in a cephalopod, the the, the most important layer, the top layer, is controlled by the brain itself. So what you have is little sacks of pigment, of of coloured material, that can be stretched out with muscles or (laughs) or allowed to relax. Um, So there's little pixel-like blobs of colour that can be made big or small on the first of these layers of skin. These are called chromatophores. And as you say, there are... Most species just have, have three or I think in some cases two different colours. So with with a giant cuttlefish, which are the most colourful animals that I know of, you've just got red, yellow and a kind of black-brown as the three colours of those sacs.
1: Which is not going to make many colour combinations.
2: It's not going to make yeah. blue and green and things <laughs> and, and, a, and a, a giant cuttlefish can make, I mean, mm. Pretty much any colour. I mean they can't mm-hmm. make a pure black but if you talk mm-hmm. to an artist, they will say pure blacks are often very challenging <laughs> to mix. Um, I've never seen a really dark blue, a kind of midnight blue. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as those examples suggest, pretty much everything else, they can do modes and oranges and different mm-hmm. greens and all sorts of colours. And what they're doing is there's the top layer which has these contracting and expanding sacks of pigment. Below that, you've got two layers of reflecting cells, which don't themselves make colours, but which um, these cells have little stacks of plates that reflect and reflect, refract light. And also, so the second layer has the plates that do that, and it's a third layer below, which are more uniform reflectors. But so you've got the stacks of colour, you've got these uh, cells so that have like prisms
1: or ref- something. So refle- they're taking. They're taking the light and then kind of splitting it into Modifying, wavelengths right, that they want.
2: Sp- splitting it and sending different wavelengths in different directions and sending it's, it back up. It's amazing. Right. So <laughs> if, if you see a giant cuttlefish making a sort of red or an orange, it can just do that with the, yeah. with the top layer. But in order to get blues and greens, uh, it would normally have to be sort of reducing the effect of the top layer and doing a subtle kind of mm. reflection, refraction. And process they can do the that in like.
1: Seconds, Quarter right? of a second, yeah. And
2: yeah. then they
1: also, I mean, they can do like pulses, and they can have one side of the body one colour, and another side a, a different colour. It's like amazing, right? <laughs> it is.
2: It is. They, they, right. There are these dynamic patterns that can look like waves of colour mm. going over the animal. The waves are often not the very complicated blues and greens and things mm-hmm. like that, but darks and lights. So there'd be dark and, and paler waves going over the animal. As you say, they can split, they can be doing a display mm-hmm. with half of their skin to one animal here and doing a sort of camouflage uh, appearance on the other side. It is astounding.
1: So the other thing that I found really amazing um, about this is that in your book you say that as, as we understand it, they should be colour blind.
2: Yeah, another one of those weird facts like the short lives, you know, you've got this big complica- this complicated animal that's dead within two years. You've got this animal which is producing every conceivable colour which officially at least ought to be colour blind because there's not the machinery in mm-hmm. the eyes that you need it seems in order to d- discriminate colours, to tell colour differences from light and dark differences. And this has been a mystery uh, mm-hmm. for some decades. I think the way it's probably going to turn out is there's probably some hidden mechanism by which they can make colour discrimination. That's what I would put my money on. And there have been a couple of proposals suggested. One I think which is, you know, yet another wonderful fact about these animals. So with a cephalopod, it appears that their whole skin has some degree of light sensitivity. It's not just the eyes that can respond to light, but the skin itself is light sensitive. and. It might be that there's an interaction between the colour-producing machinery in the skin and the light-sensitive machinery that enables them to detect, to make colour discriminations with the skin itself. There was also, I mean, that's quite, Speculative. <laughs> There's also a paper that came out a couple of years ago. I mean, anybody who's a photographer in the audience will be familiar with chromatic aberration where if a lens is not right, you get sort of colour fringes and mm-hmm. things like that. Unwanted colours being produced at the edges of a lens. Well, it might be that cephalopods are using chromatic aberration in their eyes as a way of making colour discriminations mm-hmm. uh, using a, a very unusual mechanism. Now, these are, these are speculative possibilities, myself I find it very hard to believe that they really are colour blind. Mm. And I say that because in their camouflage mode, octopuses especially, are able to match their hue, the, you know, the, the, the colour of their skin to the background extremely mm-hmm. closely. I mean, there's a photo in, in my book of a, a case where you look at it and you think, my God, you know, the octopus must know exactly what mm-hmm. greeny colour it, it needs to produce here. Mm-hmm. It'd be very hard to believe that the animal is doing that using monochrome mm-hmm. discrimination, mm-hmm. light and dark discrimination mm-hmm. only.
1: Now, we've got four minutes before we're supposed to do um, questions and um, obviously because I'm in charge, we've talked about things I'm interested in. Uh, But this is a book about intelligent life, so we haven't actually talked about intelligence. Um, And what I... So so we will for four minutes. Um, And then you could ask your questions if they're about intelligence. Uh, But what... So what... The way you describe um, the octopus is that actually this is like the closest we have, have to meeting an intelligent alien. Can you elaborate on that for us?
2: Sure. That's how I think of the significance of those, that evolutionary <laughs> fact, the, 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 the nature of the, the relationships that we and they have to the rest of animal life. So if you think, you know, what would it be to meet a real alien? It would be to meet an animal or an animal-like being that had no evolutionary connection to us at all, that arose in a completely different process on a different planet, mm-hmm. Uh, did everything totally differently as a result. Now an octopus is not that because we are, we do have a common ancestor if you go back far enough. But the common ancestor is a long way back. So, you know, the, if you're just interested in the evolution of roughly speaking intelligent life or, you know, highly sensitive animal life, then there's a kind of a Y shape to the evolutionary story where you've got a certain amount of evolution occurring in common in the early stages. Then this little worm-like guy who split into two species of worm-like guys probably something like 600 million years ago. And then you have two independent lines from that point where the familiar invertebrates on the octopus's side, I mean bees are very smart animals, Mm -hmm. very, I think it's becoming more and more clear that they're very smart animals. They're quite abstract in how they handle learning tasks and things like that, but they have nothing like the size of the nervous system that an octopus has. Uh, an octopus has a, a, a nervous system in the same general range as, as vertebrates, and they're the only invertebrate animals that have that, mm-hmm. so you've got that side on. Octopuses as the lone, the lone exemplars on the invertebrate side, and you've got us on mm-hmm. our side, so all of the, all of the similarities that you have in the kind of more intelligence-related side of octopus life and us. So you've got similar kinds of learning, you've got eyes that are similar, Mm -hmm. a kind of exploratory mode of being, a tendency to play, uh, an ability to recognise individuals.
1: Yes, I was going to ask about this because... Like, I've read things, um, I think there's some in your book as well, about, you know, people, in specific people being squirted or, um, or octopuses who don't like the lights and they figure out that if they squirt the light switch, they can kind of short it. Yeah. So, like, they're, they're very clever.
2: They're, pr- they're pretty clever. The, I think it's sometimes overstated, uh, yeah. but they are pretty clever. I think the individual recognition thing is pretty surprising. Uh, Roland Anderson and Jennifer Mather and their colleagues... We're interested in whether octopuses could really recognise individual humans as it sometimes appears and take a liking to this one and a dislike to that one. So we did an experiment to test that and they found in, the, in an aquarium setting that octopuses really could discriminate. They could remember who was the nice human and who was the less nice human. So it's not
1: about smell or Even when nice the things.
2: people were in the same clothes, they, they all uh, wear sort of surgical outfits. So the, the octopuses didn't have much to go on when they were remembering. Were they
1: doing the high fives and having a sniff and stuff?
2: They didn't give them that opportunity. Okay. It had to be visual in this okay. in this experiment. But yeah, if, if if they could do the high five then then would be fine, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> right. So they so we, we think they can they can tell the difference. Yeah it was a so pretty good experiment. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. I think
2: it was pretty convincing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. You've been listening to a podcast from the two thousand and nineteen Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.